0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party, the best place to hear outright skepticism of the status quo and independent thinking and to relish in throwing a few sharp elbows at the blob. Speaking of sharp elbows, we are excited to have our old friend and colleague, Matt Purple, sitting in for Barbara Boland today. Matt is a senior writer at the American Conservative Magazine and a longtime analyst of foreign policy, national security, politics, and general social mayhem. Daniel Larson, Matt, and I... All hosted the Empire Has No Clothes podcast at TAC, so this is a reunion of sorts. Welcome, Matt.
1: Well, it's good to be here and good to have the gang back together. Yeah.
0: yeah. Good, good to
1: have you, Matt. So,
0: uh-huh. uh, <laughs> we <clears throat> so we'd like to talk a little bit about the goings-on in our own hemisphere this month. Yeah. None of which uh, are really new to the arc of modern history, but things are happening. First, in Haiti, President Jovenel Moise was assassinated on July 7th. Police have since arrested an expat doctor in Florida who allegedly hired goons from Colombia through a private security firm in Miami to engage in a coup so he could come in and take over. Meanwhile, there's a power struggle amid the power vacuum, and the international community is restive to do something about it. In Cuba, there are street demonstrations against the Cuban government, the likes of which have not been seen in at least 30 years on the island. The protests come as people have endured COVID outbreaks, rolling blackouts, food and fuel shortages. The Biden administration has made a clarion call, quote unquote, for freedom after 60 years of communist rule, yet has made no move to restore normalized relations with Havana as of this recording, much less take a critical look at the trade embargoes first put into place during the Kennedy administration in 1960. So, Dan, um, let me ask you first about Haiti. What do you make of the assassination, and is there really anything the U.S. can realistically do about the instability there?
2: Thanks, Haley. The the story of the assassination is very strange, Uh, and so they've pinned it on this uh, so-called doctor, although the the doctor doesn't even have a medical license in Florida to practice, Uh, and he doesn't seem to have the means to hire a hit squad of dozens of mercs. So it, it, it all seems very fishy that they're pinning it on this guy who is not very well known in the, the Haitian community in, in Florida and who doesn't seem to have any of the sort of clout or connections you would expect for somebody who wants to try to take over the country. Uh, so it, it it seems to me like this guy's probably being set up as a patsy to cover up for for whoever is really behind it. and And the assassination itself is very weird because uh, apparently uh, the Mercs came in wearing DEA paraphernalia, DEA hats and and other uh, insignia, claiming that they were DEA, and somehow this got them access to the residence, and so all of the presidential security didn't do anything to stop them, and none of the security agents were injured in the attack, which seems bizarre. They're supposed to be guarding the president, and he ends up dead and nobody else except him and his wife get hurt, it, 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 it reeks of something uh, much stranger than what we've heard so far. Um, in terms of the U.S. role, I think the, the, the Biden administration so far has been playing it right. They're offering assistance with the investigation, but they're not uh, rushing to, to do anything bigger than that. There has been a request for U.S. troops to provide security for key installations, the port, the airport, And places like that. Uh, But I think that would be a a serious mistake because, for one thing, once we're in, we're going to be stuck in that stabilization role for a long time, most likely. Uh, For another, I don't know that people in Haiti actually want us there. Uh, Our government has been uh, a supporter of the assassinated president uh, and has uh, kept pushing for these new elections to take place this year when all of the Haitian civil society activists that I've been Seeing things from, are saying that having elections that soon would be completely unfair and unjust. So, uh, the the U.S. position in all of this uh, is is not not a very good one because we're we're basically implicated in backing the guy uh, who has become increasingly authoritarian and unpopular, uh, whose rule has been the the focus of all of these protests in Haiti up until now, and so we we ought to steer clear, especially given our a rather nasty uh, colonialist role in dominating Haiti in the past. Uh, the the best thing we can do is to uh, let them uh, sort out their own affairs, and and offer humanitarian assistance or maybe even financial assistance where that's warranted. But otherwise, hands off.
0: Yeah, I mean, Matt, do do we have any uh, credibility in Haiti as it is? I mean, we've tried to do something there for, I don't know how many years, a hundred years, and we seem to just make things worse when we do get involved.
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard to say, and it's for that reason that it's disturbing that our own people have, to an extent, been caught up in what looks like a hemispheric whodunit. You know, us, the Colombians, the Haitians, it's this very weird a kind of triangle, you know, this crime triangle almost, and then trying to figure out what happened here, but um, But yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, Woodrow Wilson first sent troops to Haiti in 1915. They were there until the Roosevelt administration. Um, There was instability back then, too. You know, the threat of civil war and and massive debt that the Haitian government held. Uh, The Duvalier regime, which is one of, I think, the more understated just how evil it was. The Devalier regime came to power shortly thereafter and was abetted by the United States for just about its entire existence because we didn't want the communists moving into Haiti. Uh, we, we were nervous about that. I can't say, I mean, I don't have a guy on the ground in Haiti, but I would imagine that both of those episodes bred some resentment against us. And yeah, and, we, and as Dan said, we were supporting the assassinated president too, who was increasingly unpopular. Um, I understand the government wants this, but that's not necessarily what the Haitian people themselves are going to be thinking. And uh, look, it's, you know, Haiti has always been kind of an obsession of the Americans in a way. It's it's right in our backyard. You know, it's kind of covered under the Monroe Doctrine. And of course, we would benefit from and value a stable Haiti. Uh, but that stability has never really been there. You know, one of my favorite novelists is Graham Greene, and he wrote a, a, a book called or a novel called The Comedians, which is about Haiti. It's like the, the Haitian novel of the Cold War and dict- and laying out just how brutal the regime was and just how complicit the Americans were and what happened there and just how cynical that made him. Uh, th- th- this kind of thing has a long history. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we do need to be careful and accept, unfortunately, tragically, that this is a very troubled little spot in the Caribbean that uh, we may not be able to do much good for.
0: Yeah, Matt, I was um, in an editorial meeting earlier this uh, morning, and the question was posed, well, if there's a UN response, if there's an international response to what's happening in Haiti rather than a US-led one, would that be better? What could we possibly do? And I had pointed out that there was a UN occupation of peacekeepers between 2004 and 2017, um, and they were accused of rape, sexual exploitation. There was a cholera epidemic. Uh, there were more guns in Haiti after than before the UN occupation. Um, so this is a this is a problematic situation in which there's there are no quick fixes and foreign intervention. Has has not worked before. Um, I too am interested in the the whole mercenary private uh, security company aspect of this story. As I pointed out in uh, a piece that I wrote for Responsible Statecraft just yesterday, uh, it's very interesting that the um, that the private security company in Miami had hired Colombians. Uh, to engage in this operation, supposedly they weren't supposed to kill the president, but uh, just uh, you know, speared him off somewhere. And things went, um, you know, as they always do, went terribly wrong. Um, but just a year ago, we were writing about or and, and hearing about the attempted coup involving uh, American private security company and uh, trying to depose. Uh, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, and there was a the the now infamous Bay of Piglets in Venezuela. Uh, that was involving a former Navy SEAL, and it's very interesting that we have this sort of Eric Prince, you know, flavor of these um, aborted uh, attempts. And operations, but it does seem that there are more and more uh, former U.S. military getting involved in trying to raise armies, um, do bodyguarding of foreign uh, monarchies, and uh, engage in um, you know a private uh, gun for hire warfare. And uh, I have a feeling that we're this we are not going to see the last of these uh, um, sort of like um, foreign mercenary. Um, operations directed at, you know, whether it, it be standing governments or um, insurgencies or what have you. And I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, are on that, Matt.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it is. Um, and I'm, I'm nodding along to just about everything that you said here. And I'd look, I'd be more open to an intervention in Haiti than I wouldn't say Syria, right? Uh, because it's in our so-called sphere of influence because It's just, it's a tragic little country in so many ways. I mean, the the poverty there is so extreme. I think it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. um, It regularly gets gets leveled by hurricanes. We all remember the earthquake that happened there that was just devastating 10 years ago. It it is a very sad place, an unhappy little place. and, And Um, And I wish there was more that we could do for it. And I don't think their government probably would have called on us to send in troops if this wasn't an extreme situation. You know what I mean? I'm sure they remember the Devalier regime. I'm sure they remember our previous involvement. That seems to me like a cry for help more than anything else. So I get all that. I also remember too, you know, uh, I think it was back during the 1790s, the Haitians launched a revolution and it was successful and they threw off the French. And if it weren't for that, uh, the French never would have decided to sell Louisiana at a fire sale rate right to Thomas Jefferson. I mean, we owe America to, to the Haitians in some way. It's The point being that this is a little country that does affect us more than, say, the goings-on in Yemen, for example. But, um, but at, yeah, at the end of the day, I just don't think, you know, another opportunity for the military-industrial complex, another little example of American meddling in the world that goes awry, can we really do any good here? Um, are our soldiers really going to breed stability or are they just going to breed hatred? Have we really thought this through? I know Haiti is a, a small nation, which would make it easier to occupy and control. I think under Woodrow Wilson, the, uh, the force that he sent over there was only a few hundred Marines. Uh, but, but nevertheless, do we, do we understand the players? Do we understand how to go about this? And I, you know, I don't want to give Joe Biden credit for too much, but I think he's probably taken the right approach here so far.
2: Yeah, he's been uh, pretty cautious, and I think that's that's warranted uh, under the circumstances, uh, especially when uh, we 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 I don't think we do know uh, who all the players are, and we don't really understand who is going to be running Haiti uh, in the next little while. Uh, the the success, line of succession uh, for the behind the president has basically been broken. Uh, during his tenure, he, he did so much damage institutionally to the country that there aren't really any credible figures to come in and take over in his stead. And so when you have one group of officials asking for intervention, it, it does make you wonder if they're just asking for us to prop them up and oppose their uh, political enemies. And so it, it, it's a very dicey proposition, and I, I hope we stay away from it.
1: Yeah. And just real quick,
2: you know, I could see a
1: domino effect here too, at least logically speaking, because Haiti is unstable. Well, so is Cuba. So is Venezuela, has been for a long time. Uh, Peru increasingly looks that way. Uh, Where do you stop? You know, I mean, I I get the Monroe Doctrine argument, but how far is the United States willing to go to try to guarantee stability in, in its own hemisphere? And has it reflected on just how, how much resentment we've bred through our prior interventions. I mean, that's the reason Fidel Castro is in power is that the Cubans, as it turns out, increasingly became resentful of the American backed regime there and decided eventually to throw it off. So, um, Castro's gone now, of course, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, you know, these are all things to to consider. And yeah, I think an approach of restraint is the right one.
2: Well, let's talk. Go ahead. It's interesting. uh, talking about instability as a, as a sort of justification for intervention because it's been interesting listening to Biden talk about withdrawal from Afghanistan and justifying the withdrawal and defending it against criticisms basically making the point that if you if you do open that door to trying to stabilize every unstable place then what you know why are you then not going to go in uh, in other places where there are terrible abuses taking place uh, and, and so Biden is essentially drawing a line and saying, you know, but that's not our responsibility. We're not obliged to do that. Uh, and and he's been actually quite forceful in saying that. And so it would be very strange for him to then turn around, having said that about Afghanistan, and then say, oh, but in Haiti, we should. Yeah. Uh, when, when Haiti, I mean, while it is closer to us in strategic terms, it's not that important either.
1: What about Mexico, which is strategically important and is our neighbor and is riven by violence? I mean, I, that's
2: another example. Sure. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. and, but we, we've, we've managed to avoid that at least for, uh, for now. Yeah.
0: Well, what about, you know, you brought up Haiti, Matt. I mean, could, would you consider that the economic sanctions on on Cuba that have been in place since 1960, since the Kennedy administration are a form of intervention and warfare. Isn't it time to lift those sanctions and um, maybe let the reforms or democratic forms happen more organically since for decades, the opposite has not seemed to work.
1: Yeah, we should be clear the main reason why Cuba's economy has faltered the way it has is because it's a socialist, effectively totalitarian society. Um, the same reason that North Korea's regime has has been unable to manage its country properly. Uh, that, that is the main source of the strife in Cuba. But yeah, I mean, it, it's worth asking after all this time, after the Soviet Union collapsed so long ago, after it became clear that whatever weapons it might hold, Cuba is not any kind of serious threat to the United States. Um, is it worth finally lifting these, these sanctions, especially as so many Cubans are dying of the coronavirus, they had to manufacture their own vaccine as a result of that. I, I wouldn't trust that thing as far as I could throw it. You right. can pay me enough to get that particular vaccine. Um, but that's kind of the, you know, the situation that they've been forced into is, does, is this really worth it anymore? You know what I mean? and, and, the counterargument to that from the Marco Rubio's of the world, and I have a little bit of sympathy for this, would be, well, what we're doing is discrediting the regime. And these protests show that if we don't accept the legit, legitima, ha, 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 legitimization of the regime, there we go, um, if we don't lift the sanctions, then the people will eventually turn against it. And I, I understand the point of that, but to that I would respond, these protests are not going to end with the overthrow of the regime. Right. They're just not. They didn't the last time they this kind of thing happened, I think it was back in the early 1990s. Right. Um, the, the, the Cuban government is just too strong, and, and there are enough people who support it that I think these will eventually get repressed. And so the question becomes: okay, there's clearly a large percentage of the Cuban population that favors freedom, you know, that that wants this government gone. What is the best thing that we can do to assist them? Is it to continue starving them and denying them vaccines and, you know, closing off their trade in the hopes that one day they'll, you know, the, the regime will fall as a result of that, even though it hasn't for decades so far? Or is it to accept that Cuba's actually been liberalizing a little bit and they've been incrementally getting better? Um, and you know, the, the Obama policy seemed to breed some goodwill over there. And there were expressions of jubilation And right. when it was put into place. Uh, should we, therefore, you know, revisit that? And, and that would be my approach.
2: Well, I, I agree. And I mean, certainly the embargo is outdated the, at the General Assembly. Uh, every country voting, uh, except for the U.S. and Israel, voted uh, to condemn the ongoing embargo uh, because it is such an anachronism. It is, it is so uh, pointless. Uh, but a, the more immediate issue, I think, is the, the ban on remittances that was established under the Trump administration, which Biden has not yet lifted, uh, and that's, that has a more uh, immediate day-to-day impact on uh, the lives and livelihoods of people in Cuba, because they, they have relatives who would be willing to provide them uh, with, that, with those remittances uh, to help uh, keep their economy going at least a little bit, and, and that's now been cut off as well. So the, those are the kinds of things that need to be uh, overturned and, and quickly. And it's it's strange to me uh, that Biden has not tried to revive the Obama normalization program uh, agenda. Uh, and and, and I, I don't really understand why that is. I guess it's this same fear uh, of voters in Florida that's keeping our current Venezuela policy in place. Exactly. And you don't want to anger the exile communities, so you, you just— Keep starving their relatives, which seems odd.
1: Right. While acknowledging that it's only the older Cuban Americans that broadly support this policy, the younger ones tend to be a little bit—they're still anti-socialist, but they tend to be a little more nuanced in their thinking about Cuba itself. So e- even that argument may not hold for too much longer. I agree with you, Matt. And I, you know, ran
0: a little some of the numbers before I get on the show, and it was like, fifty-eight uh, percent of Cuban voters typically vote Republican. Fifty-eight percent of 1.4 million you know Cuban eligible Cuban voters in the country. Um, so I mean, that's a little over half. And that has been going, as you mentioned, down. Um, there's 233 million eligible voters in the United States. So when you're looking at this, you're looking at 1.4 million Cuban voters, a little more than half vote Republican, 65% of those are in Florida. So you have this diminishing number of, of voters who seem to be holding <laughs> the policy and our presidencies hostage to their whims. And I particularly, I understand, I even sympathize, even maybe empathize with uh, Cuban exiles and their families and the pain that they went through during the revolution. But is it really worth holding um, Florida and every election every four years hostage um, and a policy that certainly isn't working uh, this embargo policy, and let's not forget that the Trump administration slapped on new sanctions, reversed the, the Obama normalization, and put Cuba on the uh, list of state-sponsored terrorists. Uh, Pompeo did that be, before leaving before leaving office as a a little parting gift to the new administration. Um, why are they state-sponsored terrorists? Because they're holding like fugitives from the seventies there. Um, they, they, they collude with Maduro. Um, they support the FARC. I mean, is this really um, a, uh, a threat to our national security interests, really? Um, so it's really just um, uh, arbitrary and uh, penalizing and pandering to a very small group of active voters in, in Florida. And I really don't think that's how our foreign policy should be operating.
1: And even within that group itself, here's what I would be very curious to know. And, you know, having not done my research and I'm not even sure this research exists, but how much of that sentiment is due to the policy of the embargo itself, right? How much of it is is they, they oppose any kind of liberalization in any way, even if it has good effects in Cuba versus they're reacting against some of the absurd, fatuous, hackneyed, Michael Moore stuff that every Cuban can read at a 12th grade reading level and that they all get pristine health care and, and isn't this just a socialist paradise in the Caribbean, right? Or or they look at the Democrats and they see that they're the party, more so the government, and they associate that with the regime back home, right? How much of it is that and how much of it is they are just, you know, holding with white knuckles onto this embargo policy? I'm not sure. I would be very curious to know. My, my sense is, my inclination is it's more of the Latin. Right. And the left has embarrassed itself on this question over and over and over again. I mean, that you know, there was a time when the category of useful idiots could have summed up a lot of people in Hollywood who were believing essentially Cuban propaganda. That just wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, the, the question is, uh, it, you know, how many of these people would really be open to a change in what is essentially a trade policy if it meant that it could do some good for. The Cuban government. I don't know. Their, their senator seems to think that that embargo needs to stay in place forever. I'm not trying to answer my own question here because I don't have an answer, uh, but I would be
2: curious to know.
0: Dan, do you want to wrap us up?
2: I, well, I'll just come back to the, the question of the state sponsor of, of terrorism uh, label that was applied to Cuba or reapplied. Uh, and j- just to make the point that the, the Trump administration did this also with North Korea, uh, and there was no actual evidence to support that decision, or the one on Cuba, uh, they they were really grasping at straws, trying to come up with justifications for it, and it shows that these kinds of labels and, and lists uh, are almost entirely political, and in in this case uh, partisan political uh, in their motivations. And uh, it, I think that ultimately does real damage uh, to our national security when the claims that our government makes about serious security issues are so clearly driven by. Uh, these kinds of manipulations. And uh, it it reduces uh, the trustworthiness of of the statements from the government, and it makes it much harder uh, for us to advance our interests uh, in other places.
0: is a colleague and a friend and one of the freshest voices on U.S. Middle East relations out there today. Anel Scheline is a Middle East Research Fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Before that, she received fellowships from the U.S. government, including a Boren Fellowship and a Foreign Language and Area Studies Fellowship, as well as fellowships from the Project on Middle East Political Science, the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom, and the Bonique Institute for Religious Tolerance. I'm sorry if I uh, skewered that the uh, pronunciation of that, and now, Um, but pre- previously, uh, she was this one postdoctoral fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Prior to beginning her PhD, she worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen. In addition to academic writing, she has written for the Washington Post, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Politico, The National Interest and the Globe Post, and has done myriad media appearances, most recently on Al Jazeera, TRT World, and BBC News. And she has uh, done a a ton of research all over the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia. For many Americans, Saudi Arabia is a faraway place full of princes and Wahhabism and oil. They know that the majority of hijackers on 9-11 were Saudi Arabian. And now, you obviously have experience and a perspective uh, that takes on the the complicated landscape of Saudi Arabia, the history, and the current dynamics under the leadership of Mohammed bin Salman. I'd like to start the conversation, and I know we're going to have a lot to talk about, but, um, you know... I'd like to start the conversation on on Saudi Arabia. Um, is is the kingdom a, as dark and malign as as Americans picture it? What is the current state of relations between the U.S. And, and Saudi Arabia? Is it devolving or just evolving?
3: Thanks so much for having me, Kelly and Daniel. It's really a pleasure to to be here to speak with you today. Um, so. Yeah, I, uh, Saudi Arabia is is a fascinating place. Um, obviously, as as you mentioned, a lot of Americans have a lot of negative associations with Saudi Arabia, um, having to do with, um, obviously, 9-11, as well as just sort of general perceptions about misogyny. And so this is part of why when the current Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman um came to power as crown prince and then later visited the United States in early 2018, there was this really robust media narrative about he was going to be this reformer, he was going to transform Saudi Arabia, and he did undertake certain policies, like finally allowing women to drive, for example. Um, He said he was going to return Saudi Arabia to moderate Islam, uh, arguing essentially that Saudi Arabia used to be more moderate and that that had shifted after 1979. Um, and essentially what punctured that glowing media narrative was the, his decision to have journalist Jamal Khashoggi horrifically murdered in early October of 2018 in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And after that, we saw a major shift. Um, it was after that point that the United States stopped providing mid-air refueling to Saudi fighter planes that were uh, launching airstrikes into Yemen. Um, subsequently, the the next Congress that came in following the 2018 midterms when the Democrats uh, took control of the House, we saw a lot more efforts to try to rein in Trump's support for the Saudis, especially in Yemen, but also the, the lack of accountability that um, in terms of, of um, MBS's role in the murder of Khashoggi. And so, what's been interesting is the extent to which President Biden, as a candidate, adopted a very hardline approach towards Saudi Arabia. While on the campaign trail, he said that he was going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. Um, the Biden administration did finally release the report that fair, quite clearly linked uh, Mohammed bin Salman to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which was already known um, but or widely suspected, but he did release this report, which was something the Trump administration had declined to do, um, despite Congress demanding its release. Um, but what we've seen subsequently is Biden's apparent hesitancy to further sanction Mohammed bin Salman, um, to really throw the book at him, or to, to even follow through on these statements about making Saudi Arabia pariah. There had been some initial optimism after Biden declared on February 4th that the U.S. was going to end all support for offensive Saudi military action in Yemen and uh, end relevant arms sales. However, we've seen subsequent arms sales go through, not all of them, but some of them. And there have been demands from Congress of the need to define what exactly the Biden administration means by relevant arms sales or support for offensive military action. Because, arguably, up to this point, the Saudi or the the U.S. support for Saudi Arabia has not really changed, despite Biden's statement that it would. Um, And so this this is the reason I'm I'm focusing on on Yemen um, just has to do with the extent of the humanitarian catastrophe happening there. However, it's also very important to keep in mind the level of of repression that Mohammed bin Salman has um, meted out upon his own population, we did see, initially, the release of Lujain al-Hathloul, a, a very famous female Saudi activist who had been imprisoned and subject to torture as a result of her efforts um, to, to try to advance women's rights, especially having to do with the right to drive. Um, so when Biden came into power, we did see her being released, which was a good sign, and I think signaled that, the, that Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudi administration understand that they weren't going to have the same blank check they'd had under the Trump administration, where Trump allowed them to get away with basically anything um, and supported things like the the blockade of Qatar, for example, that that Saudi and the UAE launched against Qatar in 2017. Um, But unfortunately, we then saw the Biden administration kind of backing off and not actually continuing to apply pressure. Um, And so... I, I say, unfortunately, because I do think there was a real opportunity here. And we saw the Saudis give in on a couple things. They ended the blockade of Qatar. They released al However, up to this point, the Biden administration has not insisted, for example, that the Saudis end their offense, their 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 bombardment of Yemen, as well as the devastating blockade of Yemen, which is contributing to the, the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Um, so, So all of this kind of to to go back to um, your initial point about sort of Americans' perception of Saudi Arabia, we've seen also the Saudis launch a pretty robust media campaign. There have been outreach. Well, for one thing, the Saudis appointed their first female ambassador, um, one of a a Saudi princess um, who's here in Washington and has been engaged in a lot of outreach also into sort of the heartland of America, trying to, again, promote this image of Saudi Arabia as, as reforming, as promoting women's rights. Um, and then there was a recent announcement about this, this new um, Saudi media outlet to also try to shift the perception of Saudi Arabia in the eyes of Americans. And so while on the one hand, I, I don't want to, to demonize Saudi Arabia, I mean, this is a country that is very important to the region. It is it is uh, lo- it is large geographically, large from a population standpoint, very large in terms of its economic role, in terms of oil markets. And I do think it's important that Saudi Arabia not fall apart. This would be hugely destabilizing. Um, and this is part of what Mohammed bin Salman is trying to do. He understands that it is necessary for Saudi Arabia to, to transition away from oil, that women need to be allowed to work. That the Saudi economy cannot continue the way it has previously, it simply can't afford to. So on the one hand, I do think it is important that the U.S. maintain a war free, that he is a, a dangerous actor, um, at, least, at least up to this point. I think the hope among some circles is that he may have learned some of his lessons in terms of um, the the devastating effect of the war in Yemen, for example, but in general, I would encourage the Biden administration to use the the leverage that the United States has in terms of both Saudi repression of internal dissidents, as well as trying to end the Saudi uh, military campaign against Yemen.
2: Sure, I know, and I I agree with that. I I hope that they will start using some of that leverage. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, one of the things that we saw just recently in early July, though, uh, is that the, the Saudi deputy defense minister, who's also the crown prince's brother, was received in Washington, uh, maybe not with a lot of fanfare, but he was able to get meetings with the secretary of state, with the national security advisor, I believe with the secretary of defense as well. Uh, and he was uh, essentially given every courtesy uh, that you would extend uh, to a, a country that uh, you, know, you would expect that for. A, a formal treaty ally, maybe, but maybe not for a, a client like Saudi Arabia, especially given uh, their recent behavior, and especially given uh, Khalid bin Salman's role in luring uh, uh, Khashoggi to his demise in Istanbul. So it's uh, it was it was disturbing to see that they were willing to welcome him back. Uh, of course, he had served as the ambassador to the U.S. before this, um, and it, it it does raise the question: Has have there been any meaningful changes? Well, you, you outlined a few of the the, the minor uh, shifts in, in U.S. policy. But have there been any major changes in U.S.-Saudi ties uh, since Biden took office?
3: No, there really have not. Um, and I, I definitely agree with you that it seemed like the White House was trying to keep um, Khalid bin Salman's visit um, fairly quiet, and, and this is in keeping with what the Biden administration has done so far, which is to sort of talk a big game, but then nothing really changes. Um, and I think this has opened up the Biden administration to pressure and to critique from, from Americans and from Congress if if the American people uh, decide that they, that they want to push their representatives on this and to pressure the White House because Biden had come out so stridently on the campaign trail. And again, early in his presidency, making statements about how the U.S. was no longer going to support, for example, Saudi military action in Yemen. Um, but, But I am not surprised by the treatment that KBS received on his visit. This, again, is in keeping with what seems to be the Biden administration's decision that as long as no one's really taking them to task for it... They are going to maintain a, a relationship with the Saudis. Um, to get to uh, the, I think I think it's it is important to address something about Mohammed bin Salman and sort of the narrative about him, which is essentially that you still have, you know, d- despite the, the negative press, uh, mostly tied to the murder of Khashoggi, but also the war in Yemen there is still this perception that he is transforming Saudi Arabia and, and reigning in the religious establishment, for example. And I think it's very important to be skeptical of that, because in general, what he has done is to throw clerics in jail who were independent, people like al Auda, for example, who had been who, who is a, a very well-known um, figure and very well-respected as, as a religious authority, um, who is... a. Deeply conservative, he is. He is very much um, of of the the Wahhabi school of thought, but he's also embraced um, kind of new ways of thinking and and promoted the notion of the need for evolution and and to sort of consider um, some ideas that that some other Wahhabis would consider quite anathema to their creed. And so he is someone who could be. Actually, quite useful to Mohammed bin Salman if he were in fact serious about trying to move Saudi Arabia towards a, a perhaps more pluralistic understanding of Islam that would allow for alternative interpretations. Um, but, so for, but instead, he has um, MBS has imprisoned Salman al-Awda. He's been in he'd been in jail before this most recent time. There are concerns. He's he is on death row. Um, and there are concerns that he may just be be um, allowed to die in prison, not given sufficient medical care.
2: Um, I remember that his, his son had been speaking out about this, uh, saying what, what poor conditions he was living in and, and how badly he was doing. Uh, and and that's a good example of where uh, the Crown Prince's repressiveness is really sort of in overdrive. Is if, if I'm not mistaken, his transgression, the, the reason that he was, thrown in prison, is that he offered a, a somewhat uh, conciliatory tweet about the the blockade of Qatar. Isn't that right? Yes. And and that's why he's been locked up, because he didn't agree with the objectively insane policy uh, that the Saudis and the UAE were engaged in. Exactly. Uh, yeah,
3: and, and right, he simply expressed a hope that, you know, um, some sort of reconciliation, you know, could be reached, something that it seems quite anodyne. And at this point, the, the blockade of Qatar has ended. And so, you know, right. the Saudis and the Qataris are in, in real rush on trying to improve relations.
2: Right. And so why um, is he s- still in jail? Exactly.
3: Um, exactly. So, so I, I guess I just want to point out, though, the difference between um, I don't want to say simply reinforce kind of Americans' view of Saudi Arabia as this sort of backward conservative right. place. I think the point is there are people in Saudi Arabia who do want to move the country towards a a more open, uh, perhaps perhaps even towards some kind of more representative form of government. Um, and this is not anathema to, to who Saudis are. This is what I think a lot of young Saudis, many of whom studied abroad under the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, which the previous king... Um, used to to send many hundreds of thousands of Saudis to study in in the U.S., for example, in the U.K., and in Australia, and elsewhere. Um, And so this is the young generation of Saudis that really welcomed Mohammed bin Salman's reforms, that historically, when we've seen um, efforts by the ruling family to try to shift Saudi society, you often saw a backlash from these more conservative elements. And instead, under Mohammed bin Salman, his, this young population of Saudis really welcome his efforts at these reforms, but unfortunately what we're seeing is is mostly repression of anyone who who says anything, like this tweet about about Qatar, um, that that could be seen as critical of Mohammed bin Salman. So I guess just the point being that Saudi Arabia would be ready for a reformer, and Mohammed bin Salman, unfortunately, is not that kind of a reformer. I, I also do want to make the point, though, that there are some in Washington who seem to think that there's someone else waiting in the wings who could be better than Mohammed bin Salman. And I, I think it's also important to keep in mind that there there isn't necessarily—I mean, all of the Saudi ruling family are mostly just interested in retaining their own power, um, which is the case, basically, for monarchies everywhere. Um, so I, 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 want, I don't want to come across as seeming to propose that the U.S. should be involved in some kind of, like, regime change effort to overthrow him. Right. What I am advocating for, however, is that the Biden administration continues to have leverage there and really use it. We've seen Mohammed bin Salman respond, um, and and just in terms of his most egregious human rights abuses, the U.S. should not be willing to tolerate
2: them. I, no, absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, one of the, the things that, I, that came to mind as you were discussing some of his policies is that it seems to me that he's played sort of a double game in terms of his talk of religious reform, where he will uh, urge a, a more moderate Islam uh, or a more moderate form of Islam and, and will criticize the radicalism of uh, of others. Uh, but at the same time, his government is uh, actively stoking sectarian uh, hatred against Zaydis in Yemen as part of the way to, to build support for the war. And so he, he on the one hand, he'll he'll uh, sort of attack the interests of clerics, but then he'll he'll also throw them red meat.
3: Definitely right, and we've seen you know the religious establishments, So, for example, the the High Council of Ulama, those m- many of whom have have made statements that you know as Americans we'd sort of consider ridiculous things about like the notion that women couldn't drive because it would be bad for their reproductive systems or something like these, these are the kinds of statements that come out of some of these people on this council. And those, those people are all still there. He hasn't moved against the religious establishment. As I was saying, he's moved against these independent voices that he sees as potentially undermining his authority or, or, you know, otherwise sort of a a source of threat. Um, So I, I, in general, One thing when, you know, in terms of, yes, he is definitely stoking sectarianism against the Zaydis. One more encouraging note, however, was the speech that he had made about um, needing to, to a certain extent, get along with Iran or to acknowledge that they're there and they're not going away. Um, And and the hope, my hope in particular, given my work at the Quincy Institute where we try to reduce U.S. militarism and, and especially are working on trying to move towards a smaller U.S. military footprint in the region, um, which has been a goal of the past several administrations. And now with the, the end of the war in Afghanistan and the, the review of the U.S. force posture that Secretary Austin is undertaking, there is hope that Biden might actually finally reduce this unnecessary presence of U.S. troops in the region. And there seems, and it seems that Gulf leaders are responding to that. And so this is how I interpret these statements by Mohammed bin Salman, as well as the leadership of Iran, about the need for more reconciliation, about the need to acknowledge that the other is there and they simply have to learn how to coexist with each other. Because at the end of the day, the Saudi Arabia does not want to fight a war with Iran, neither does the UAE. Um, they, they were fine if the U.S. wanted to fight that war. Uh, you know, they're happy to, to base our troops and, and, and let American service members fight and die. Um, but they don't actually want to take that on themselves. And so as we're hopefully seeing a smaller role for the U.S. military in the region, I, I, it's very important that the U.S. not try to, to take the lead on kind of facilitating something like a regional security architecture because that would leave the U.S. in charge but to encourage our security partners to to pursue this, to to develop better working relationships with each other. And one way to start that would be just around easier things like maritime agreements, you know, having to do with um, communication about ships in the, the Strait of Hormuz, for example, or the Persian Gulf. And then those kinds of steps could be built upon to develop better working relationships between members of the GCC and Iran.
2: Absolutely. That, and that would be uh, certainly a, a significant improvement over the the tensions we've seen in the last few years. Uh, and, and you can already see the significant shift in, in Saudi rhetoric, as you're saying. I remember just a few years ago uh, when the crown prince was on his big media tour in the U.S., uh, he was saying something to the effect of uh, Ayatollah Khamenei is, the, is you know, like Hitler. He's like Hitler in the 30s and he's coming to get us. Uh, and you know, saying just outlandish stuff uh, and talking about taking the fight inside Iran, and and he doesn't say any of that anymore. Uh, I think the the strikes on Aramco uh, that happened uh, in 2019 uh, <laughs> put an end to that sort of bravado. Um, and it definitely, and the
3: fact that the Trump administration didn't respond, right, or at least didn't didn't respond in a in a very overt or public way, right, when
2: they realized that they were kind of on their own, they they've figured out that they, didn't, they couldn't be quite as uh, careless in their rhetoric. Um, exactly. Uh, exactly. One, one other uh, topic I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, before we finish is uh, the, these ongoing attacks in Iraq by Iraqi militias, uh, which, you know, which are always described as Iran backed Iraqi militias, but of course Iraqi militias have their own reasons for fighting against the U.S. military presence as well. Um, and Biden has launched... Uh, at least a couple um, large airstrikes against Iraqi militia facilities and bases, uh, ostensibly you know, to defend US forces against these attacks. But this has only resulted in more attacks. Uh, and it feels like uh, sort of deja vu all over again, uh, where we were under the Trump administration. Why do you think Biden is uh, basically continuing a holdover Trump policy and actually has lowered the bar for the use of force?
3: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I, I suspect that some of that may have to do with the fact that Biden is focusing right now on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Maybe he fears the political ramifications of, of appearing to withdraw from Iraq at the same time. Obviously, we did see a lot of criticism of Obama's decision to withdraw from Iraq and the subsequent rise of Daesh. But when people criticize that, they don't usually follow it up with the fact that, well, the U.S. was able to go right back in, and the international coalition defeated Daesh, and if something like that should arise again, whether in Afghanistan or Iraq or elsewhere, there is an international community committed to going back in to to prevent something like the so-called Islamic State from, from rising again. And that doesn't mean that U.S. forces have to remain there indefinitely. Um, So my hope is that perhaps following the the total drawdown or the the full withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, hopefully Biden will turn his attention to Iraq um, and and withdraw. That, you know, we saw the Iraqi parliament formally request all U.S. troops pull out. We saw following the the murder of, of Soleimani. The, the, near, the fact that Iraq was about to be a battleground between the US and Iran, and, and it was really restraint on Iran's part that, that prevented that <clears throat> war from breaking out. And so I think as long as there are US service members there, they really kind of act as a tripwire, unfortunately, and, and the US really could very easily go, go to war with Iran over this. And so I think if Biden doesn't want to get dragged into another Middle East war, which he says he does not... It's very important for him to get U.S. service members out of Iraq. Their their mission there has ended. Daesh is defeated. If something were to arise again, the U.S. and other countries can go back in. Um, Likewise with Syria, the U.S. does not need to keep service members in Syria. It is really time for the United States to end these endless wars and come home.
0: No, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about the normalization agreements because I know that you've written quite a bit about them and I you know I don't know how much people who are listening know about them, but you had mentioned the ultimate goal of getting US forces out of the Middle East. Do you think that these normalization agreements which you know, the UAE has signed, Morocco had signed, um, you know, with Israel. Uh, Do you think that these um, would move that goal forward if the Gulf states and Israel and other uh, states in the region start working together on a common security architecture? Or do you think that they're ultimately divisive um, and will keep us anchored there?
3: Um, I'm kind of of two minds on this, because on the one hand, I do think that the long-term narrative that the United States has to remain in the region to protect Israel, that is somewhat undermined by the fact that now we do have several key countries that have openly normalized with Israel. Other countries that have not yet normalized, like Saudi Arabia, you know, it's an open secret that, that the, the Israelis and the Saudis work closely together and then the Saudis are, are not going to launch rockets or, you know, launch, start a war against Israel. Um, so on the one hand, I think the normalization agreements can help the U.S., argue that Israel no longer needs American support and that actually the ongoing U.S. military presence can, in fact, inflame tensions and perhaps undermine Israel's security. On the other hand, I I do worry that Israel might use its newfound friendship with the UAE to potentially launch attacks against Iran from from the UAE, um, which would certainly then draw the United States back in if if you know, Iran would respond, obviously, and and the U.S. would feel it had to come back in to defend Israel and 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 the UAE. Um, so I I do worry that the the, norm, the Abraham Accords and any subsequent additional normalization agreements that may transpire might serve to further enmesh U.S. in the region. Um, However, my, my hope is that Biden continues this momentum that he started with Afghanistan really reduces the U.S. role in the Middle East. Um, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the way that that is being justified is with this pivot to Asia and the, the so-called Cold War with China. Unfortunately, I think is, is the framework that the Pentagon is using to sort of justify a drawdown in the Middle East, which is a whole other conversation. Um, but I, I think in general, we, we have seen Biden holding firm on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And that gives me some optimism that he might be willing to do the same on, on rethinking U.S. presence, um, elsewhere in the region.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Anel, for, for coming on the show and, um, being so informative. I, I know we could go on at at great length on this issue. So we'll just have to have you come back.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well thanks so much for having me thanks to you both for for this show i really love it um and it's it's really an honor to, get to speak with you
2: thanks okay. Anna, we appreciate it
0: and also and now where can we find your work and on social media as well
3: yeah so i'm probably well, spend too much time on twitter um, <laughs> right yeah <laughs> it was anel uh, just first name last name on Twitter, and then um, at the Quincy Institute, my my author page has has links to all my recent writing and media appearances, um, and uh, so hopefully this this appearance should show up there as well. Awesome.
0: Okay. Well, you take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You too. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.